Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Brian Miller has amassed a lot of notes over a quarter century of farming. They cover everything from how best to chase down three little pigs on the run to the art of losing a pocket knife. He shares such amusing stories, along with practical advice seasoned with joy and lament, in a new volume from Front Porch Republic Books. Pull up a chair as Brian joins me from Tennessee. Brian Miller is the author of Kayaking with Lambs and a man who has been farming since the 20th century. That used to sound like a joke. It's not such a joke anymore. Brian, welcome to the Brass Spittoon. Delighted to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Good to have you and all of our guests get the same opening question. What does home mean to you? Well, that's a complicated question since I come from Louisiana, which has a strong sense of place and identity, but I've been in Tennessee since 85 when I came up here after college. So uh, home is definitely the farm that I share with Cindy and have for 25 years. Uh, But home is also where my family is, which is primarily in Louisiana. You talk about your family and your farm and your book, Kayaking with Lambs. Is that now an Olympic sport? Uh, I think it is going to be in the next Olympics. Yes, what's that in Paris? Demonstration sport, perhaps. Demonstration sport. That's. It's an odd title. It's an odd title, but the subtitle is a bit more straightforward. Notes from an East Tennessee farmer. So I'm in East Texas. Tell us a little bit more about East Tennessee. Well, Tennessee is divided into the three grand divisions, west, middle, east, and each one of them are geographically different. Each has a different history. East Tennessee in the Civil War was primarily Union. It's got a lot in common with a lot of the Appalachian region, has a lot of small subsistence farms, uh, still does. I live in a fairly uh, poor valley, and a lot of my neighbors you know, are modest incomes, working people, working class, but they still uh, will raise pigs, have gardens. It's a very kind of a, a classic hard scrabble. People who want to be involved in uh, putting their hands in the dirt. So it's kind of a unique area. I think there are other places like it throughout uh, this country, but East Tennessee has definitely uh, been a good home for me after moving from Louisiana. And you get your hands in the dirt a good bit. From reading your book, I was impressed by the diversity of the products that come off of your farm. You've got all sorts of critters and and collards and veggies. Well, greens, the collards, the turnips, the mustard greens, I mean, that's essential for any Southern boy to have on his farm. But uh, our farm is always had this balancing act between generating income for us and also being one that is a form of provision 
for us. I grew up uh, in a family that my dad was an engineer, but I grew up in a family that hunted and fished. I ran trot lines as a kid. So we were constantly putting food on our table. And I think I carried that forward into uh, my life here on the farm. But we have raised uh, uh, beef cattle for about 20 years. We recently got away from that and now just recently got back into it. Uh, we've always raised uh, sheep and hogs for customers. I still think anybody with even about uh, a quarter acre should have a hog in their backyard. That's probably the simplest way to generate a lot of uh, protein to put in your freezer. We've got orchards, a vineyard, lots of gardens, lots of herb gardens. Uh, it's again, running the farm is just such a lovely way to, to engage with your natural surroundings. And how big is it? It was 70 acres when we first started. It's 50 acres now. We sold about 20 acres to a young couple uh, who had some neighboring land and needed a bit more to expand. And so as we've both gotten older into our 60s, kind of scaled back a little bit on that, though we seem to always be doing more than we should out there on the farm. I think of your book as a bit like a big bowl of gumbo. As you mentioned, you come by that honestly. You've got those South Louisiana roots. I call it a gumbo because the short vignettes that you share show the influence of Aldo Leopold and his observant nature writing, a bit of John Muir's awe, some agrarian advice and moralizing a la Wendell Berry and Joel Salatin, plus a healthy dose of Southern storytellers like Jerry Clower and Justin Wilson. So how'd I do on your inspirations and how would you categorize your 161 pages? <laughs> well, that's a, the, the last one's kind of a big, big question, but I think, uh, yeah, who knows where your inspirations come from? I can say that the Aldo Leopold, uh, hits close to home on one particular note in there about the death of a, uh, oak tree on our farm. You probably picked up on that. I made that note. Yes. In my, in my reading, uh, <laughs> another good oak, I think I wrote. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, so you know, I've always loved to read. I've come from a long uh, career in the book business. And uh, so inspirations are probably pretty diverse. Could be even some uh, Robert E. Howard uh, Conan springing up in there somewhere. I don't know. But uh, there's certainly Shackleton and a lot of other folks uh, who show up in, in that work. As far as the characterization of the book, uh, you know, I've been writing for about 25 years, these kind of weekly summaries of what's going on on the farm. And uh, I always thought there could be something I could pull together there. Uh, I think uh, I came up with this device of using the uh, monastic hours, and that helped me shape the end result, along with a lot of help from uh, my partner, Cindy, and Jason Peters at uh, Front Porch Republic, taking a massive quantity of notes and trying to figure out what was appropriate to put in there and, and to try to tell the story of this, of this farm. The monastic hours came from, there was a Bill McKibben book many years ago where he spent 24 hours watching TV over a complete cycle of the day. And he also contrasted what he saw on TV with what he found in the natural world during a 24 hour period. And I always liked that device. And I thought, you know, that was just a helpful way to kind of look at 
the rural life that I was leading and modernity, the outside world. And so I thought about going to sit somewhere on the farm for 24 hours. Uh, I didn't quite have that commitment. Probably because we watched too much CAD file, I came up with the idea of the monastic hours as a structure to uh, go and sit and meditate about my relationship with the farm and what it's given me and, and my relationship to nature and my relationship to modernity. And uh, that was helped me structure uh, the overall bit of the farm, a uh, bit of the book, excuse me. And I was going to go to that at the end, but let's dive into it now. You mentioned your, the monastic office format that you used. Reading the book, I thought of Wendell Berry, and he's described himself as a poor weather churchgoer, but it seems like not even the rain is going to drive you into a pew. And you open with a long quote from St. Francis. So how do you view God on the farm? Yes, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Uh, I grew up as a Southern Baptist in South Louisiana, surrounded by uh, Catholics. Uh, so, you know, I probably come by that gumbo stew pretty honestly. St. Francis of Assisi, I've always loved that, uh, that prayer, that poem. I think it speaks to a relationship with nature that I think uh, Christianity often struggles with, as does most religions in the world. Religion is probably a cycle that we go through in our lives and where we end up uh, is still, for me, very much a journey. So, uh, you know, I went through a long secular phase in my life and uh, increasingly, and partly because I'm on the land, I've grown to see how toxic our contemporary world's viewpoint is of people who share a faith. And um, so I don't know where I'm at, John. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a process. It's one that uh, I get uh, a lot of satisfaction from uh, contemplating my relationship uh, with the world and with my family and, uh, and my community. <clears throat> where it ends up, who knows? Well, you're in a place where you get exposed to a lot of Romans 1, if you will, the book of nature. So I hope that journey ends well for you. You mentioned that you had another career uh, in the book industry, and I had flagged that as well. It made me think of a recent talk that Rory Groves gave. We were both at the uh, FPR conference in Madison, and he said that his life was an experiment to see if one could be an agrarian without being a tenured English professor. And I thought that you were going to be a, a proof positive that that was possible, but then I saw this. Uh, in the book, you mentioned your, your time in the mines of the book industry. So I started to worry that you may indeed have a PhD in English and perhaps even are a closeted professor. Can you clear that up now for us? I definitely can. I, uh, I have a state degree from LSU, uh, a bachelor's degree, which uh, I think Randy Newman said uh, uh, they go, uh, go in dumb and come out dumb too. 
uh, for uh, graduates at LSU. So uh, it's probably not too far off the mark for me. But uh, my book career is uh, nothing uh, too academic at all. It was in the retail mines. I, uh, I ran a bookstore of my own in downtown Knoxville back in the 80s and uh, mid-90s. It's kind of a alternative bookstore, and it was also a used and a rare book business, and I have great fondness for used and rare bookstores. After I sold that uh, business, I went to work for a remainder book company and uh, ended up serving as their director of stores over a, a chain of bookstores across the country, and uh, eventually uh, we both stepped back from each other a, a few years ago. I've always hesitated, John, when I'm talking about retiring from my book business because the farm business, the farm work has been such a dominant part of my life that it seems to uh, devalue the work that Cindy and I have done, even though we both had full-time jobs during a large part of the time we've been on this farm. But I think that's that's the occasion for a lot of people who farm, whether people farm big commodity crops, people often have other jobs, or whether or not people are doing what we're doing is kind of a, a hybrid of a, uh, a commercial venture and a homestead. Well, I think small bookshop owners are certainly welcome at the Front Porch Republic as well as farmers. Now, when I was talking about influences, I mentioned Justin Wilson, and I think you may have disputed that one, but you have in your book a few culinary stories. I was thinking of a particular pesto. <laughs> well, now that was a, uh, that was a, uh, that's something that, uh, that happened a few years ago. I was uh, fixing a dish uh, for Cindy and me and decided I'd use these little pesto cubes that Cindy had processed all of our pesto, put it in an ice tray. It's one of those kind of Martha Stewart things that people do and then never do anything with. They kind of sit in the back of your freezer and eventually throw them out. But I intended to do that. I had some pasta going and I was getting ready to go into the freezer to get this pesto out. And then I saw that Cindy had already taken one out. It was sitting on a little tray in the refrigerator and I thought, brilliant. You know, she must have been thinking the same thing I was. She was out feeding or doing something out on the farm. And so I, I pulled that out. I had it sitting out on the, the counter. And meanwhile, I was, I think I was fixing catfish that day. I had some and some butter. And uh, Cindy came walking in right when I was about to toss the pesto into it. And she says, make sure that fecal sample goes <laughs> back into the fridge. Uh, I'm taking it to the vet tomorrow. I think timing in our lives on a lot of issues uh, is uh, important. And that was one of those days when it was very important that she came in when she did. Well, who knows? People eat all sorts of things. That's not one I would uh, normally recommend. And that's an example of some of the funny stories, life on the farm, notes that you share. You also get into more serious topics. You address rural culture and even touch on one of those issues that a lot of people avoid, climate change. Give us a, a little better sense of your little slice of Tennessee and your take on, on how it's doing. I'm not as uh, hopeful as I was maybe even two years ago uh, when this book came to its completion. I've been shocked, uh, John, at how quickly people have been able to move into our area 
buy up property with no intention of doing any farming, exclude local people from being able to afford their property. And a lot of it comes down to this idea of being able to work remotely. And that's a gift. I mean, it's wonderful that people can work remotely, but it comes with consequences like everything does. And I think we're going to be unpacking those consequences for a long time. What I expected was that change that would come to our small valley in a slow, incremental way over generations has instead, in the matter of just two or three years, completely changed the um, the dynamic and the culture. Bill Kaufman wrote a piece, I don't know if it was for Front Porch Republic or for Spectator, where he talked about some study he saw about the percentage of people in different states who were either native-born or from another state or, you know, or, or an immigrant. And I was shocked to see that Tennessee was hovering around 58%. And I think that study shows you how difficult it will be to maintain a culture that is rooted in a place when that many people are not even from that area. Now, that study doesn't show that's on a statewide basis. It doesn't show on particular counties or, or areas. But I think East Tennessee has been affected by this because it's uh, it's on I-75 and I-40, uh, two major interstates. And so it makes it very, and it's, you know, it's right in the middle of the country. You can get, you know, to Chicago or Orlando or D.C. in seven or eight hours. Certainly in a rural culture like that, that still exists, the 42% or so, and even uh, among our friends on the porch, there are some people who are going to hear any talk of climate change and smell a hoax. What would you say to those folks based on your, your decades on the land? Well, I don't have, I don't have any data to, to support uh, one way or the other. I think uh, what I can say is that the impact of people on the land, I think it, it would be difficult to not think that we don't have an impact on our environment and the environment certainly also includes the climate. So I think, you know, one can certainly uh, drive from our farm on a spring day when it is 68, 72 degrees, make it to Knoxville into an urban setting with the urban heat effect, and the temperature is much more significant. The Just to think in terms of the growth that we've put on this planet. When you drive around, you see how many roads there are. Not to think that there are not consequences for wildlife, for the environment, I think would be silly. So then to extrapolate from that to larger impacts from our presence on this planet, I think makes perfect sense to me. Now, I think the difficulty for me gets into what are the solutions? You know, we've got a kind of a uh, oligarchic top-down approach uh, by governments right now that I think are probably operating on other agendas. So I think climate change, I think if we can divorce it from, from what the elites want to use the possibility of climate change 
to develop a new culture or society, we can have a healthy debate. I think the, the bottom line is nobody left or right, John, is interested in becoming like the Amish and giving up their lifestyles in order to... Well, the Amish are interested in that. Yeah, are they? Well, you'll tell me... Well, tell you said nobody's that. interested in being like the Amish. I'm just saying that you have the Amish, so there's there are some people who are oh, interested oh. in that, I think. I think there's a certain a certain draw, certainly for people on the porch, to at least get a little more Amish-like. But I hear you that no one, well, let's say that the majority of the culture is not going to to make that switch overnight. Right. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we've all got a, a very cushy life. I mean, I'm dealing with this uh, massive uh, freeze right now in East Tennessee, but I'm still in a nice house that's uh, well insulated. If the power goes out, I've got a generator that I can haul out and switch over the inverter and at least have the well pump going. I can bring in some electric heaters, a wood stove, you know, all those little things that we love to have. I think climate change has gotten to be one of these third rails almost. It depends who's talking about it and what they intend to do about it. I think, uh, I think we're impacting the climate, but I don't think we have the courage as a civilization to do much about it. And those who have plans for us, I don't trust them. I, wanna, I don't like top-down. I want bottom-up solutions. And you mentioned, you know, that you didn't have any worldwide data, and that's a fair point to make. But I'm curious, what have you seen in your two and a half decades on the farm? Are things as stable as they once were? No, yeah. no, they're not. I mean, we uh, we have uh, we have apple orchards. We are losing our crops, and you can see the data about uh, a specific crop like apples in Tennessee. Uh, we're losing them more frequently because we have longer warm spells, which causes our trees to bud out earlier. We still end up with late freezes that that destroy the buds on the trees. I mean, that's a that's a very simple way to look at it. Uh, anecdotally, you can talk to the old timers who talk about the extended periods when they would slaughter hogs in November, and they had plenty of cool weather in November and December to hang their hams and cure their cure their uh, sides of bacon. It seems to us that it is more unpredictable as far as what it takes to be able to depend on growing your crops. And right now we're talking during a cold snap, which is not inconsistent with climate change, but uh, getting back to life on the farm. One of the things that happens in midwinter like this is lambing season. Are you getting some new baby lambs? Well, we haven't started yet. They have, and thank goodness, because this has been an absolute miserable week. And we expected them to start uh, last Monday when we got the eight or nine inches of snow. We've been below freezing ever since. So I assume that if it's miserable weather, and for me, that's the time they want to start lambing. But they're <laughs> close. They're very close. Probably another day or two, we'll start having a lot of lambs on the property. Then it gets gets exciting. I bet it does. And one of the exciting things is the kayaking events. So you've got this title, which is eyebrow raising, maybe a little perplexing. Why don't you tell us where that title, Kayaking with Lambs, comes from? 
Well, the first part of that question there, John, is I blame that on Jason Peters. I spent a fair amount of time coming up with good, solid, creative titles, and he kept just uh, telling me to come up with something (laughs) new. And then the second part of that is uh, Scott Moore wrote a book called How to Burn a Goat, which is a lovely book about farming. And I was staring at my shelf, literally staring at my shelf, trying to find some inspiration for a title. And I saw his book and I thought, yeah, I should just go back through my book and think about the various stories I've told. And I should be able to find something. And then lo and behold, there was this story I had about the kind of day where we keep putting things off that we should be doing. Uh, In my case, I was taking care of something for my uh, job in the house, and I kept hearing the sheep bleeding, and the sheep bleat all the time, particularly when you've got lambs around. And I could always hear one little lamb in the background, but again, I was focused on other things. I finished my task in the office. I went into town. I came back. It was pouring down rain. I could still hear the sheep out there. I could still hear this one lamb bleeding. But instead of doing my job as a farmer, as a husbandman, I went and took a nap. And then I got up after the nap and I came down. I was going to make coffee and I heard that lamb bleeding again. I finally sunk through my thick skull and I went out there. And sure enough, in a livestock pond several hundred yards away from the house, there was a little lamb, maybe a month old, that had gotten stuck at the bottom of a, of a dam that went across uh, to make this livestock pond, uh, stuck in, in the water, couldn't get out, picked the wrong way to go. Its mom wasn't around. They were all in the hay barn. They had managed, and I didn't realize this, to knock over my panel, securing the hay to feed them all winter, and were busy just demolishing uh you know, the hay that they would need to, to sustain themselves for the rest of the spring. And so I, uh, I grabbed the kayak from the barn. I hauled it out to the livestock pond. I got in it. I managed to choose the smallest kayak that we had. And I'm 6'2", 200 pounds. And so I was balanced on top of that. So the story ultimately is about me rescuing a lamb, returning it to its flock. I was so disgusted with the event that I thought the best thing to do was go to the freezer and find some lamb chops so we could eat them for dinner that night. (laughs) And uh, the the proofreader in me notes that uh, the title is Kayaking with Lamb. So have you had a chance to do this multiple times or was this your one and only Kayaking with Lamb adventure? This was the one and only. Somehow Kayaking with Lamb just didn't have quite the same pun. Yeah, that sounds more like you're delivering those lamb chops rather than... That's correct moving experience that you had. So Brian, Paul Harvey's old bit, uh, So God Created a Farmer, was indirectly in the news recently due to it being co-opted to promote a non-farmer from New York. I thought of it again when you close your book with a Harvey-esque riff, and I was wondering if you might close our time together by reading a few of your final paragraphs. Absolutely. Yep. would love to. Farming is the ripe tomato the hand-milled apple cider, the baskets full of potatoes in cold storage, the ham curing under the stairs, the freezing midnight alone at the top of the hill. It is bees bearding on the front of the hive on a summer day, 
cutting hay on a Memorial Day weekend, admiring a newly erected fence line, and knowing intimately the work that went into building it. Farming is a barn stacked with the hay you just baled, a garden bursting with produce. It is freshly baked bread slathered with the honey that you harvested, hamburgers off the grill courtesy of the lambs you raise on the hillside behind the house, a bowl of homemade yogurt topped with blueberries plucked from the backyard. Farming is the joy of lambing, the loveliness of a newborn calf, the hatching of chicks, the grin on the ram as he is released into the flock. It is a randy romp of fecundity from spring through winter. Farming is the birds and the bees all day and night. Farming is the pleasure of doing for yourself, caring for the land, caring for your customers, even that one. Providing for your family and countless others. Farming is not about you. It is about the vegetables you raise, the livestock you rear, the land you steward, the wildlife you provide shelter for, the satisfaction of being a good tenant on this good earth. Farming is not a career. It is not a lifestyle. It is life. And Brian, we thank you for sharing some of that life with us today and in your book, Kayaking with Lambs. Notes from an East Tennessee farmer. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, John. Until next time, watch out for the poop pesto and thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home Find your